You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning again. Um, David always does such a wonderful job making sure he's intentional. I don't know if you know that about David. He's very intentional, if you haven't noticed. And he's intentional about greeting everybody uh, on a Sunday morning. Um, But if you showed up after his greeting, I extend it to you again. Um, It's great to see family. It's great to see uh, new faces. And uh, I pray that this morning that we will all be drawn to the one who makes us family. Uh, God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Have you ever estimated that a lake isn't really that far across and you decide you want to swim to the other side only to get about a third of the way and realize, man, I am farther from either shore than I really want to be. That's how I felt all week. I'm so overwhelmed with so many nuances and threads in this story uh, that we'll look at today from Isaiah 41. I pull on the thread and it leads farther and farther away from shore. My energy runs out and I feel like I'm drowning. I'm still almost drowning. You can't wait to jump in with me, right? The water's deep and the waves are high. But remember, as Ricky described to us so well last week, that the ocean is in the cup of God's hand. And his thumb and pinky are attached to that hand. And I like what Ricky said. He says the entire breadth of the universe is right there in between God's thumb and pinky. And it's attached to his strong right arm, which picks up his sheep in comfort and holds them close to his chest. Pray with me. God, creator and sustainer and redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In the name of our great Savior. Jesus Christ. Amen. So here we are this morning, enjoying the comfort of being held closely to his chest in tenderness, if we are God's children. Some of us are acutely aware of this fact. Others may be yearning to feel it because some current hardship at the moment is briefly shattering shadowing our perspective. Others may not yet be aware due to routine or laziness or whatever the case may be. But all of these are his children nonetheless. Others, though, may not know this comfort because they are not his sheep. And within this category, there are yet two subcategories. Those who are not yet in the fold from our perspective, but are destined to be. And then the enemies of God, who will forever be his enemies. No matter the category today, though, we all have one thing in common. We are human. And though I can confidently say that I know I'm a part of the fold being held closely to his chest, These chapters in Isaiah cause in me, and I think should cause in all humans, fear and trembling. For the elect who know they are are elect, fear and trembling come from the way that God reminds us of our utter state of helplessness and our smallness and the fact that we are only dust before the great God of the universe. He uses that to calibrate us again to the wonderful truth 
of his great love for us, despite ourselves. And that he is indeed our great shepherd. Our love for him thus deepens. The elect that, they, that don't know they are elect yet also fear and tremble as their human condition is made clear and they realize they have no hope. Eventually, whether today or tomorrow, this word will quicken them to life. If you find yourself in this state today, you're not really sure whether you believe but want to, our prayer for you is that you will find yourself breathed into by God, just as Adam was, who was formed from mere dust and made alive by the breath of God. And for the enemy of God, this very same word, which calibrates and quickens the elect, this word will fuel his stubbornness and toughen the calluses on his heart. There is this other important category that I don't want to leave out today. Those who know they are elect, but are ignoring it and squandering it. They're squandering their relationship with God through a stubborn refusal to bend to God's hand. It's always the case that a deepening love for God comes through the progressive death of the flesh. If, oh, and through crucifying all that is sin in us. If through this word today God is leaning on you and pointing out an unrepentant heart, I urge you to immediately start running. Run away from that sin and place your heart on the altar. Raise the knife high. Begin a strong downward thrust. And then be in awe when you hear a rustling. It's the rustling of these pages right here. And I think when we're obedient to place that uh, heart on the altar and crucify the flesh, I believe those pages will open to Romans 12.1. The New Living Translation reads this way, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. We are a living sacrifice rather than a dead one because Jesus was sacrificed and died. And we know that that, that sacrifice was acceptable and pleasing because God the Father raised him from the dead. Just as we sang about this morning. That we might in him, live with him, and to him forever. So what about the enemies of God? Do they fear and tremble? I'm not sure about today whether or not they do. But I do know that God's proclamation in Isaiah 41 is that he will not be mocked. And he will utterly wipe out those who oppose him. So they are remembered no more. Those who are strong in their own eyes, reliant on their own resources and wisdom, and are so stubborn as to ascribe worth to inanimate things made by their own hands and pretend, maybe even actually truly believe, that these idols actually represent some real force or entity or actually have any kind of existence or power whatsoever, these enemies of God will be destroyed. And we believe the Bible teaches 
that this destruction is an ongoing, everlasting death. It's the very antithesis of the life that we live in Christ and how it is an everlasting life. For those being destroyed, there will be extreme fear and trembling without hope. An everlasting, ongoing lack of hope. They will never be able to hope of being saved from the supreme power of the Lord of heaven's armies. This is very bad news. It's difficult news. However, we can't know just how good the good news is without the bad news. And as it is with every section of scripture, right here in the middle of bad news, the gospel can be found. Please stand out of respect for God's word. From Isaiah chapter 41, verses 17 through 20. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open the rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. You can be seated. This water and shade for those in the desert is good news. It's also a near-term prediction that Isaiah is giving here. That God's chosen ones that will be sent into exile, they will be refreshed and shielded amid the destruction of many cities and kingdoms at the hand of Babylon and Persia. And Jerusalem is included in that. It was laid waste. This is also a long-term prophecy. The miracle of Christ being living water and the ultimate shielding from eternal death for the elect. Jew and Gentile alike. And this is a foreshadowing of how the church would be made into a family. And though literally hundreds of directions could be taken and applications made from this text and chapter 41 in general, the goal here today is to remind us regardless of which category we find ourselves in. Just how badly we need the living water and the shielding that Jesus offers and urge ourselves to let God pull us in close to his chest, close to himself through this reminder. And if you are not walking with Christ, that is, do not have a personal relationship with him today, The goal here is that you would not leave your seat without crying out to him today to save you. Now I want to go through a brief character identification here. Near the end of last year, I was in First and Second Kings, finishing up around Thanksgiving. And intrigued by the fresh review of... Uh, the history of the two kingdoms, and this time through, this time through, um, I, I was given an eye for tracing the seed of the woman through Israel's history, and I was just amazed at how, like, it looked like there was no hope that that seed could be transmitted down through the ages, and God's promise uh, protected, if you will. 
his covenant kept. And even though Israel and Judah absolutely did not keep their part of the covenant, upon finishing, I asked God to lead me to my next study. He led to Isaiah. And I read a good portion of it just in time for Christmas and for Brad to announce that he would be preaching through Isaiah. And with this seed-tracing mentality and perspective that I was given, I saw Isaiah with new eyes. It became very important to me to slow down and determine who was speaking at the moment and to whom were they speaking. It made it a bit easier to discern the paths that God used to transmit that seed through David's line. I noticed the characters, if you will. I saw Isaiah, of course, Yahweh, the Lord of Heaven's armies, as the New Living Translation puts it. I saw Israel slash Jacob, and I usually would typically interpret uh, Israel slash Jacob as the elect. And then we saw the nations, the Gentiles, whom I would typically interpret as those not elect, trying to understand what God was saying exactly and to which category of person he was saying it. And also to the Gentiles who didn't know they were elect yet. That's the next to last one there. Backing up one, I realized that sometimes God was speaking to Israel and Jacob. And they were the enemies of God he was speaking to. They were physically in the kingdom of Israel, but not in their hearts. It didn't take long at all also to see myself. So this parsing of the stanzas helped greatly in understanding the prophecy and events in actual history and how the word of God that stands forever applies to every phase of an area of my life. Sometimes like a soothing balm and at other times, now hang on here, um, follow this. Sometimes like a soothing balm, a soothing balm, but at other times like a chest drain tube that's inserted by piercing the skin between the ribs with a 22-inch, yes, 22-inch long needle that's followed by a tube the size of my thumb into your lung to create a drain channel, all without anesthesia. This was for an injured soldier on the battlefield whose lungs are filling up with fluid that will drown him in just a few moments. This chest drain tube will save his life, but only through pain upon excruciating pain. Now, I'm sorry for that image, but I had to watch a video of it being used by a medic uh, on the battlefield. Now, it was a simulation, but still. And I'm going to have to make it so it can be used, too. So you can ask me about that later. <laughs> I hope I don't have to use it on anything. So let's go through a quick history lesson here. I mentioned, uh, you know, just seeing this history, of fr you know, for uh, kind of freshly for the, this year the, going through Isaiah. So around the 700, 700s B.C., um, Isaiah prophesies that Babylon will invade and destroy Judah and Jerusalem. He also prophesies that Babylon will be destroyed by a king from the east that will attack from the north. Uh, in chapter 45, he actually calls that king by name, Cyrus. This is 100 or 150 years or so before Cyrus actually shows up on the scene. And we see this in uh, Isaiah 39. In Jeremiah 25, fast forward to 613 B.C., Jeremiah prophesies the 70 years of captivity 
of, of Israel, uh, the exiles in Babylon. Slight fast forward, somewhere around 600 B.C., during, during that range, Nebuchadnezzar conducts the first, second, and third exiles over a 20-year period. The 70-year captivity begins at the first exile. And then in 586 B.C., Jerusalem falls after a two-year siege. Second Kings 25.3 says, The famine in the city had become severe, and the last of the food was entirely gone. Just get this image in your mind. It's going to be important as we continue. Army is surrounding Jerusalem. And I don't know if you've seen pictures of Jerusalem. It's up there. Its walls are high. It's tough to, to uh, even get up to that city, much less siege it and eventually conquer it. But the siege did not, the, sea, the army did not allow anything in or out. The food was gone. People were starving. And then let's fast forward a little bit more. Somewhere around 535 or 540 B.C., Cyrus of Persia is stirred. He knows God appointed him for the purpose of sending the exiles home. He actually called on the nations around the area to support the Jewish people in their rebuilding of the temple. The 70-year captivity is over. As we continue through uh, this message, I encourage you to have a Bible handy. Um, there's going to be a lot of references that won't be on the screen necessarily. I'm going to refer to them. Also, uh, you know, if you have a pen and can quickly write these references down, um, it will be helpful to do so. And if you don't have a Bible today, just kind of scoot close to who does. So here in Isaiah 41, we, we find a dreadful state for the chosen. And an even more so dreadful state for the nations. For God's chosen people, the food has run out. We see Lamentations 1, 8, 2, Chapter 2, 11 and 12, and chapter 4, verse 10, that gives us a sense of the dreadful state that his people are in. And it's very clear in these uh, references that God is punishing his people, but with a purpose. Let's look at Je uh, Lamentations 1.8 real quick to get a sense of the state of his chosen people. Jerusalem has sinned greatly. So she has been tossed away like a filthy rag. And y'all, that's not a rag that has just been, had, had soiled hands wiped on it. It's, it's not good. All who were once honored, are, all who once honored her now despise her. For they have seen her stripped and naked and humiliated. All she can do is groan and hide her face. The reference from 410 is even more dreadful. I'll let you uh, consume that one on your own. Digest it. Mm. Now, for the nations, with Babylon as the poster child, they will be destroyed, never to rise again. Jeremiah 51, 63. 1 through 64 says, Jeremiah said to Sariah, when you get to Babylon, read aloud everything on this scroll. Then say, Lord, you have said that you will destroy Babylon so that neither people nor animals will remain here. She will lie empty and abandoned forever. Her people will sink, never to rise again. And for a more detailed and horrific view of this absolutely destroyed fate, uh, skip back a bit in Jeremiah 51 and read through that. So even though the state is dreadful for the people of God, there is an even more wonderful redemption for the chosen. But it, but it gets even more dreadful for the nations because it's an eternal 
dreadful state. This terrible and unfathomable unfathomable state in which the people of God find themselves has served its purpose. Isaiah foresees the redemption from this state and provides a sense of how wonderful that redemption is in chapter 41. Our reading this morning was from verses 17 through 20, but I'll jump back in that same section a bit to verse 8. But as for you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, my chosen one, descended from Abraham, my friend. I have called you back from the ends of the earth, saying, You are my servant, for I have chosen you and will not throw you away. Go back to Lamentations 1, verse 8. Judah had been thrown away like a filthy rag. Here's the promise of God saying, even though that's the case at that moment, he says here, he prophesies, for I have chosen you and will not throw you away. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. This is not an everybody sitting around a kumbaya campfire type of warm, fuzzy feeling that Jesus has saved us. That has its place, but what we're talking about here is a people punished severely for a systemic and nationwide sin of idol worship being brought very low. They're stripped naked, humiliated. They're groaning and hiding their face in shame. God's chosen ones, though, have repented as a result. Lamentations 3 now depicts a humble people. Verse 40 reads, Instead, let us test and examine our ways. Let us turn back to the Lord. And then verses 55 through 58 read, But I called on your name, Lord, from deep within the pit. You heard me when I cried. Listen to my pleading. Hear my cry for help. Yes, you came when I called. You told me, do not fear. Lord, you have come to my defense. You have redeemed my life. This is extremely wonderful news to a people who have experienced heavy loss and punishment. I find Daniel in chapter 9 to be a great example and represent the renewed heart of God's chosen people. You should read that very soon. And the redemption from Babylon is only a foretaste of what's yet in store for all of God's children for all time. So much of the book of Revelation depicts our wonderful final redemption. But I'll refer to chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat from the tree of life. But, as with the nation of Babylon in history that is utterly destroyed, never to rise again, the news is not good at all for the nations that represent all who have rejected God. Much of Revelation depicts the eternal state of death and hopelessness for those who have not become the sheep and children of God through Jesus. To sum it all up, I point to chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I want to ask a question now. How big is God to you? I want to turn our attention for a moment back to chapter 40 in Isaiah, verses 12 through 31. Over the last couple of weeks, David and Ricky have pointed out so well 
that, that these rightly are words that are in fact tender words to comfort his people. And imagine God doing that, comforting his people. Who else has held the ocean in his hand? Who else knows the weight of the earth? He says, it's me. Who is able to advise the spirit of the Lord? Has the Lord ever, ever needed anyone's advice? To whom can you compare me? He says to his child. What image can you find to resemble him? Now these wonderful rhetorical questions are for any and all of his people that are worried, nervous, or suffering. The answer to these questions is obvious to his chosen ones. God has us. He has us. But I want to see also my next page. Um, I want to see also, though, how these same questions can be directed to those who are from the lands beyond the sea, the nations, which I'm understanding to represent the non-elect, the enemies of God. So now chapter 41, 1, God speaking to the nations. I don't know if this is taking too much liberty, but I see this verse 1 is connected backwards to these same questions. And forward, of course, to, to chapter 41, especially verses 2 through 7, and then again, verse 21 to the end of the chapter. He has a command here, listen in silence. John Oswald points out that the analogy between verse 1 here and Job 38.3, which says, gird up your loins like a man and declare to me, he says, this is Oswald, thus the nations are called to approach in awed silence. Yahweh, the Lord of heaven's army, is really driving home his greatness here. Hear these questions again from chapter 40, but as if you are the nations, the enemies of God. Who else has held the oceans in his hand? Who else knows the weight of the earth? Who is able to advise the spirit of the Lord? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? To whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble Him? These questions, as do those asked of Job, which we'll look at in a moment, make me feel like I'm on the Mount of Transfiguration. The veil is pulled back, and with each additional question, I'm squinting more and more. And what little strength I have is waning quickly. I can't imagine any, any response other than silence from anyone being called before the only true God, the creator and director of all that is. Can you imagine being called before him as his enemy? The full strength of his radiance directed at one without the shield and protection that Jesus gives to his lambs. That's a dead man. And this helps me see verse 1 of chapter 41 as not at all ironic when he says, listen in silence and come now and speak. Which is it? He says, bring your strongest arguments. These commands are not in opposition to one another at all. Court is open. God is the judge, jury, and prosecution. And he has called for the nation's case to be brought before himself. Indeed, the invitation to speak with strong arguments before God may as well be a command to listen in silence. Because there are no arguments before the God who has just revealed himself. 
even for the most stubborn and proud human being. And when God reveals his high and exalted state and demands an answer for sin, one tries to form the words, but there's no strength to utter a response. Consider Job, chapters 38 through 42. Amen. That's five chapters. God speaks for the entire chapters. Here's a couple of the questions that, Je that God has for Job. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? And on and on and on and on the questions come. God makes it crystal clear that he is creator and sustainer of everything that is. And all Job can say is, I've got nothing. I thought I knew, but now I have seen. I sit in dust and ashes in repentance. And that's God's desire. And it's Isaiah's message to us. To all who are his, Jew and Gentile. They will be quickened and yield to him and be brought into the fold through repentance through repentance like Job. And remember, as I stated earlier, Daniel 9, man, it's just a great example of the character of a repentant heart. These that are, his, that are his will be brought into the fold where they will find protection from the Lord of heaven's armies who marches ahead, destroying his enemies and protecting his chosen ones. Before leaving this scene, though, I want to ensure that we have a proper sense of God's courtroom. This is not a scene where the smartest guy in the room is Perry Mason. And the judge is sitting just slightly higher with a jury of the accused's peers off to the side. Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 through 11 gives us an extremely different view of, of this. And this picture doesn't do anything justice, of course. But I wanted to try to encourage you in your mind's eye to go here. If it helps you to close your eyes, do so. I want you to really get this. And instantly I was in the spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven, tor seven torches burning. This is the sevenfold Spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a human face, and the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who was and is and is still to come. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and they exist 
because you created what you pleased. Again, I ask, how big is God to you? When you come before him, do you approach him as the God who sits on his throne, high and lifted up, from whence come lightning and rumbles of thunder? Do you envision the living beings with eyes all over them and hear the swoosh of their wings? Do you see and hear? Man, I, I hear the 24 elders' knees hit the ground in unison and hear the thud of their crowns placed before the throne. Do you see this in 3D? Not only is God in the center of his heavenly court, but he's at the pinnacle of it as well. I'd love to stay right here because, as they say, there's a whole sermon for this. Suffice it for now, though, for us to take this key thought away. If your problems, if your pain, your heartache, your worry, your whatever, fill in the blank there. If these things routinely loom larger than God in your life, then your view of God needs to expand. The problems may not feel smaller or go away. The pain might be just as intense. Worry may continue. But when you recognize and realize God as he has revealed himself in Scripture, he becomes supreme in your life over everything. Because he is supreme over everything that is. And your perspective, then, is shaped by him. Trust grows, love deepens. And this is a process for sure. You are to be highly pitied though if you are blind to him, stubborn against his hand in your life will not believe that he is indeed over all things as creator and sustainer, and thus will not yield to him. You must understand that if this describes you, he counts you as his enemy. This is not good, as we'll see. Yesterday I had a uh, opportunity to be around Someone I pray that is, will not long-term be God's enemy. Um, and I was reminded just, just how thankful and wonderful it is that we're saved. Because I, I look and we're talking about everyone fearing and trembling before God. I fear, you know, I'm trembling because I realize that without Christ, that might be my life. It was, uh, it was on the golf course. You know, I usually just go out by myself, and, and if there's someone to uh, pair up with, I do. There was a couple guys that knew, over, knew each other. They were in a cart, and I was in a cart with someone else just as a single. And I'm so glad I was with this dude over here because, you know, they, it's not like these guys were really having a conversation with us, but, man, the conversation they were having, just just terrible and all I could see was them blind as citizens of Babylon just living it up married at least they think they are and just so thankful that that Christ has died for me because again I shudder to think what my life would be like without Christ. So I want to go to uh, back to Isaiah 41 and go through this one-sided conversation. 
As we look into verses 1 through 7, I want to take a second and remind us just how strong Babylon was. They surrounded the city, allowing nothing in or out, eventually starving the people of Jerusalem. They built siege ramps to the top of the city's walls and finally broke them down. In fact, they destroyed everything of value, burning it to the ground. You can see this in 2 Chronicles, I think I meant 36, and Jeremiah 52. They spent years and many resources wielding this power and strength to destroy Jerusalem and take captives. They, oh, and remember the state of Jerusalem and her people. They were naked, humiliated, groaning, and hiding. Remember also that even though Babylon was going to be destroyed for doing wrong to God's people, God was justified in punishing Jacob. Ezekiel chapter 4 through, well, almost the end of the book, makes this clear, describing the sins of Israel in detail and also God's response to those sins. So look at 41, 1 through 7, God speaking to the nations. The ones called upon to bring their case before God in his court, remember what his court is, they are judged and sentenced. Through verses, though verses 1 through 7 are indeed addressed to the nations at large, Babylon stands at the forefront as a primary representative. The sentence is death and is to be carried out by God himself, utilizing the king from the east whom he has stirred up to his service. The nations will see this and they will tremble. They'll respond through self-reliance, including on partnering nations, and through idle reliance, because they won't rely on a God in whom they don't know and don't believe. They are his enemies. So this was a prophecy here in Isaiah for a closer, chronologically speaking, view of this and a more detailed woe to Babylon, read Jeremiah 50 and 51. These verses leave no doubt that God is saying, I will destroy you, Babylon, because you have done wrong to my people. Case closed, God is stronger. Now, verses 8 through 20 is God speaking to Israel. Now, this great strength, this immense, immeasurable omnipotence of God, he now uses to reassure his chosen ones. Our reading for, the, from, our reading for this morning once more, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open up rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put the, in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. Those were for shade from the scorching sun that would kill them. And the water was for life that without it they would die. I do this so that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Think about this. Isaiah has established that God is supreme and powerful beyond words. God has promised to destroy Babylon who laid waste to Jerusalem. There is much reason for fear and trembling. But in the midst of this, God promises deliverance, sustenance, relief, restoration. This language should sound very familiar to us. 
I will never leave or forsake you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. For God's chosen ones who firmly hope, firmly hope for the fulfillment of these promises, fear equates to extreme awe and healthy respect for his power. God gave these words to his people ahead of the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of its people so that when humbled via destruction and heavy punishment, he could open the eyes of the repentant. Those he foreordained to yield to him that would constitute the remnant that would be restored to Jerusalem. That he could open their eyes to his promises and prove that he fulfills his promises and redeems his people. They would clearly understand also that God destroys his enemies. How so? Again, God said beforehand that he would stir up a leader who would approach from the north, from the east he will call on my name. I will give him victory over kings and princes. He will trample them as a potter treads on clay. Furthermore, though now they know, Israel that is, that they know without a shadow of a doubt that they are a little worm. God indicates that Israel themselves, following the lead of their Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, will be used as a threshing sledge that will tear their enemies apart. This is clearly a reference to the Messiah and His Word that will go to the ends of the earth, lifting up the valleys and making the mountains low the shepherd will find his sheep and destroy any and every one of them. Excuse me, not the sheep. Jesus will destroy any and every enemy who will prey on his sheep. And then finally, verses 21 through 29, God speaks to the nations, and I think, also to all those who worship idols who are in Israel. Now, I set out this message, set out to preparing this message, thinking I would spend considerable time comparing and contrasting God and the idols of the nations. The last verse, 29, which reads, See, they are all foolish, worthless things. All your idols are as empty as the wind. That's a conclusion of an argument God has been constructing in many of the preceding verses. Indeed, much of chapters 40 and 41 contain direct and swift blows to the idols and their worshipers. In trying to key up this context, though, it was the context itself, the power and the might of God that became the main subject for today. I do want to comment, though, that one of my um, favorite aspects of this chapter is the way that God mocks the idol makers and their idols. In my mind, it looks something like this. Everyone's been called to the courtroom. The nations, the idol makers, the idols themselves, the people of God, they're all there. including the ones who are the people of God, but yet entangled in sin. God provokes the idol maker. Now remember that he called these idols into court and their, and their makers. He provokes the idol maker, looking at their idol that they have made. Let them... Tell us the distant past or the future. 
Let them tell us anything. Crickets. I see God stepping off his throne and placing the idol up there. And then speaking directly to it. Yes! Tell us what will occur in the days ahead. Then we will know you are gods. Even more awkward crickets. Is there a growing sarcasm in God's voice? In fact, do anything, good or bad. Do something that will amaze and frighten us. His tone changes. Judgment and condemnation again flow forth. His words are still directed to the idol, but his gaze and eyes blaze against its maker and worshipers. He's still speaking to the idol. Imagine this idol that God's placed on this, on this throne, pretending, trying to call him to account, but his eyes are firmly on the maker of the idol. No. You are less than nothing and can do nothing at all. Cue camera one. The idol is still propped up looking like the dummy it is. Cue camera two. God's blazing gaze again, again directed to the worshipers. He speaks again to those to the thing with no ears. Those who choose you pollute themselves. Obviously, these words are for the ones who actually do have ears. And I hope it's obvious as well that making carvings and statues is not what's being condemned. It's our choice to sin by reducing or completely removing the only true God of the universe who created us and replacing him in our lives with something created, whether by God or by ourselves. Or worse yet, replacing him by attempting to set ourselves up as a God. And as I said, I imagine that the entire cast of characters is present during this scene. So I want to quickly address one of the characters that represents many of God's children. It's those who are indeed his children, but are dabbling in the sin of idol worship. And that's playing with fire. We've clearly seen the power and jealousy of God and his vehemence against it, against sin. As children of God, our hearts will convict us when we dabble and get comfortable with and allow sin to go uncrucified in our life. If this is the case for you today, please recognize and admit that you are chasing the wind, investing in worthless things, corrupting your life, and putting yourself in God's crosshairs. Remember, He destroys sin. In one case, the enemy of God is destroyed in the process. In the other case, the child of God is heavily, heavily punished and broken and led to repentance and not destroyed, but is redeemed. It's pretty bad news, but even more wonderful good news. How will this destruction of the enemies and redemption of the chosen play out? God points out in verses 26 and 27 that he knows because he's the one orchestrating the events of history. Cyrus of Persia is coming onto the scene. He will come at the appointed time and will not delay. And at this point in the story, I simply stand in awe of God, who decides to call Cyrus 
and give him, a Gentile, a very clear directive of God's purpose for his people and, and give him a heart to see that the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, for further development of this story, I'll leave you with several, several references. I mentioned Daniel 9, 2 Chronicles 36, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Thank you. Just pull on a thread and keep pulling, and you'll learn a great deal really quickly. And I trust that God will show you how all of this is a foreshadowing and foretaste of the life and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His work in our history and the complete restoration in Him that is our hope to come. About which God alone has told us from the beginning of time. At the beginning of um, the school year, Ricky handed out a little booklet, little book, um, devotional book to the youth uh, small group leaders. I'm so glad he gave me this. Um, and if you're not familiar with Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon, you need to get a copy. And you need to read it every morning and every evening. Um, for those of you who may have never heard this, Charles Spurgeon is called the Prince of Preachers, right? Yeah, okay. Make sure. Prince of Preachers. And there's a reason for that. You can hear this um, in his language. I wish I was this eloquent. For the reading from Friday night, this past Friday night, He's referring to Romans 8:33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Most blessed challenge, how unanswerable it is. Every sin of the elect was laid upon the great champion of our salvation and by the atonement carried away. There is no sin in God's book against his people. He seeth no sin in Jacob, neither iniquity in Israel. They are justified in Christ forever. When the guilt of sin was taken away, the punishment of sin was removed. For the Christian, there is no stroke from God's angry hand. Nay, not so much as a single frown of punitive justice. The believer may be chastised by his father. But God, the judge, has nothing to say to the Christian. Except, I have absolved thee. Thou art acquitted. Back to the key thought for today. If your problems, if your pain, your heartache, your worry, if the sin in your life that so easily entangles, if these loom larger than Jesus in your life, then your view of Jesus needs to expand. The problems may not feel smaller or go away. The pain may be just as intense. Worry may continue. Temptation may continue to be severe. But when you recognize and realize Jesus Christ, as he has revealed himself in Scripture, he becomes supreme over your life, over everything, because he is supreme over everything that is. Let's pray. Lord, loom large in our minds today and forever. Help us to grasp that you are ungraspable. Help us to know your supreme power and strength, that if we were to know it fully, we would be crushed under it. Help us to remember always that you punish sin but give us the grace we need through Jesus to yield to you and crucify the flesh. And we thank you. We bow low before your throne in humility 
and gratitude for finding us, having searched for us to the ends of the earth and making us the church, your servants. Thank you for coming into the world to deliver us. And thank you for your promise that you indeed will fulfill to return again to completely restore us to yourself. We also want to ask your blessing on the benevolence offering today. Take it, be pleased with it, multiply it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.